we'd gone to visit my great auntie. My cousin Verge, my brother, myself, we were playing in a park in Detroit with some kids. You know, I was eight, maybe nine years old. Everybody's laughing, tagging, whatever. And then everything went silent. And out of all these houses, moms and dads come sprinting out, grabbing kids. And I had never seen my auntie run. She was an old lady, but here she comes running top speed. Where's your brother? Where's your brother? Where's your brother? Where's your brother at? He's right there on the swing. What's going on? Get in the house. Get in the house quick. And we all ran towards the house, triple locked the door. And then Verge, my brother, myself, we pull the curtain back a little bit and we see it. Two gangs about a hundred yards apart. Young boy men carrying pipes, chains. They're walking towards each other and it's serious. And when they're about 50 yards from each other, they stop and they start looking at each other. And finally, one dude by himself breaks off from the pack, starts walking toward the enemy's side. Now he's huge, muscles bulging. He's wearing some kind of camouflage outfit and he gets to the other side, points at the sky, screams, then jumps in the middle of the gang and starts swinging. Left, right, beating everybody up by himself. Pure craziness. Then my auntie shuts the curtain. Y'all know you ain't supposed to be watching that. Go play checkers. I'm like, "Uh, okay, 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 okay. We left the checkers upstairs and we run because there's an open window up there. In just the short time it took to get to the upstairs window, we missed it. The fight was over. The police had come. People were laying on the ground. Some of them didn't look like they were moving. I saw them take the screaming camouflage guy and put him in the ambulance. I don't know what happened, but I couldn't get the image out of my mind. This one guy going over to the other side by himself, all by himself. What was he thinking? What was he trying to protect? And why would he sacrifice everything? Well, today, from NPR and PRX, Snap Judgment proudly presents The Fight of Your Life. Amazing stories from regular people with something to fight for. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Snappers, you may remember a story we did a while back about an innocent man convicted of a murder and the prosecutor who worked to get him free. Well, this story, again, comes from our same friend, Aaron Owens, and takes place after he was freed from prison. Please understand, because of the context, we use certain language that good people will find offensive. Aaron Owens was in the business of saving the lives of men convicted of terrible crimes. He worked for a death penalty consulting firm. If they hire our firm, we were just about guaranteed that they wouldn't get the death penalty. Aaron's firm would bring a battalion of convincing witnesses to testify at the penalty phases of trials. The newspaper reporter, who attended executions and drew portraits of the executed, family members of the executed, prison wardens. But Aaron's testimony was the most powerful because it revealed room for error in the justice system. He himself had nearly been executed for a crime he did not commit. So even the most despicable criminals, he argued, ought perhaps just to be sentenced to life in prison, just in case. Well, when I took the stand, I'd say stuff like, uh, I was neither for or against the defendant, that I was just here to tell my story. And my story would start out that it was 12 people such as yourselves that convicted me who actually believed that I was the man who had committed that crime. There is a chance that this person is not guilty. Aaron testified all over the country, and in each city, he saved the life of a convicted criminal. In the times that I had testified, no one was uh, executed. New York, Atlanta, uh, San Jose, uh, that was the most interesting. In the courthouse in San Jose, 
Aaron met with the family of the convict on trial before he took the stand. I had assured him that I was going to do everything I could to help them. The mother was, she seemed so sad, you know, and I could see her losing her son. I really did assure her that I was going to get him off. I'm going to do that, so don't even worry about it. This time, more than ever before, he felt his obligation was personal. And when I went to that, that court, as I was walking down the aisle, first I looked at his family, kind of nodded as if to say, you know, I got it covered, you know, I'm going to take care of your son here. And a couple of steps farther, I looked and I saw who I was getting ready to testify for. And he looked at me for a long period of time, and I saw straight hatred in this man's eyes. And then as I passed by him, he kind of spat and said, Effin' nigger. My blood pressure was so high, if I could have got to him, I probably would have choked his tongue out, you know. And with that, I just took one step and did a bout face, you know, and walked straight out of that courtroom, you know. Helped that punk because of not so much as what he had said to me, but he had said it to me who was coming there to save his life. And that's what I was there for. And yet he uh, detested my being. He looked at me as not even a person. As he walked out of the courtroom, the convict's family scrambled into the hallway after him. His mother looked him in the eyes and pled. Aaron, Aaron, please don't go. The mother was crying. She was saying, please don't pay him any attention. And the words that got me was when she said, if you don't do it for him, would you please do it for us? If I didn't testify, they they would have given him the death penalty. And and the whole family was around me. And, you know, and I looked around and saw that family and I said, I certainly can. I mean, it was without a doubt. I can do it, you know. Immediately, I thought of them. I went back in and I probably gave the better performances that I ever have, you know, to get him off. The convict was sentenced to life without parole. And for several years afterwards, Aaron got a Christmas card in the mail from the convict's mother, thanking him again for saving her son's life. Later on, how I felt about it, I felt very, very good about me growing up a little bit because there was a time that I can remember, I don't care how many families would have said something to me, I wouldn't have did nothing for him. My mind would never have left that little small world that he lived, he was in. But I've grown since then, you know, quite a bit. A big thanks to Mr. Owens for sharing his story with the SNAP. It was produced by our own Anna Sussman. Now, our next piece comes hot off the streets of Chicago, and some of the audio from this piece was taken from the film The Interrupters. We'll have more about that later. I don't want to ruin anything. Stephanie Fu, please take it away. Amina Matthews could have been born royalty. Her dad was the infamous Jeff Fort, one of the biggest Chicago gang leaders since Al Capone. But he was incarcerated when she was just a toddler. And instead, she grew up not even knowing that color television existed. Ours was black and white, and we only got channel 7 and 11. We lived in a roach-infested apartment. And when I started visiting my other friends and started seeing kids that had their mom and their dad in the household, and they had two televisions, I said, what's going on? She was being raised by her grandmother, who was doing the best she could. But Amina wanted what everyone else had. And as I got older, I started seeing the young guys and the girls on the corners. And I saw them pulling money out and saw the big cars. These guys look like they're having a good time. So Amina made a name for herself. She joined a major drug ring and started climbing the ranks. Oh, girl, it was kicking it. I was having a ball. I was the only girl that was in the mob doing what I was doing to the extent that I was doing it. That was the lieutenant hustling. You know, one crew was on the pimping tip. One crew was on the stick-up tip. Drugs, guns, party, fun, that was it. 
Amina was respected in Englewood, a neighborhood with one of the worst crime rates in the nation. She was at the top of her game, and the cops knew that. So they snatched me one day off the street, and they said, look, I need you to give up your guys, or you're going to be looking at 80 years. Amina refused to give the police any names. I said some words to them that wasn't really good words, and they ended up busting my head, you see, right here above my eyebrows. And they took all my clothes from me, and they let me out of the police station on this dirty, rocky road that led to nowhere. And I had to make a decision, am I in or am I out? And I said that I'm out. I left town, me and my son and I got myself together. Living the straight life, Amina had to come to terms with the fact that she wasn't on top anymore. She had a hard time making ends meet, but she knew she could never go back to the life she used to live. It took me to be broken down to the smallest, smallest form. My health, spiritually, emotionally, financially, to be built back up. Then she got a call. Some of the members from her old crew had left the gang and joined an organization called Ceasefire. They wanted her to come back to Englewood and join with them. She didn't have a better option, so she agreed. Ceasefire hires ex-gang members to get out on the streets and engage with the community in order to prevent gang violence. And it turned out, Amina is better at her new job than she ever was as a lieutenant. Run up, Run up, What you're hearing is a fight breaking out on the streets, right outside the ceasefire offices. A kid named Dee got into a tumble with a guy who knocked his teeth out, and Dee's sisters are out for revenge with knives and blocks of concrete. But Amina knows exactly what to do. She pulls Dee into her car. His family kept calling him. You know, what's taking you so long so we can come back over there and set that block off? I know you got some damn food for family. Yeah. I saw yeah. that you wasn't, you know, you was walking away exactly. to defend you or your family. Right. But, and I really, man, mm-hmm. man, I I'm thank you, for real. That's I, what gangsta is about I, right I, there. I definitely yeah. don't want to go. Amina takes Dee home. He starts joking about it, and soon the whole incident is put in the past. Here's Tio Hardiman, the director of Ceasefire. Amina Matthews, as a violence interrupter, she's the golden girl. And she gets in where a lot of guys can't get in. And a lot of guys I know that uh, have a lot of murder in their background, they respect her. I need everybody from the ages of 13 to 24 to stand up. A big part of Amina's job is preventing retaliation. Here, Amina is at a funeral. A teenage boy lies in a coffin in front of her, the victim of a shooting. The congregation is full of angry young men in red caps. I'm going to be real honest with you all because, see, we real talking up in here because Duke is real laying right in front of us. And it's a reason why this brother is here. I know we hurt because we love Duke, but we got a responsibility to bring up our community to be vibrant. She speaks in churches, houses, on street corners. Two o'clock in the afternoon when these babies coming home from school, y'all shoot. For real? All of it is stupid. Who does this little shorty belong to? He just hanging around y'all? So he see everything that you all do, right? So if this brother right here catch a case and do a hundred years, whose fault is it? Our fault. Teach him righteous. Y'all got it? Yeah, So what you gonna do, son? Tell me, and I'm gonna hold you to it. Make myself better. But a lot of the time, Amina's job requires her to do more than preach. She forges close bonds with these kids. Take her relationship with Capricia. The money that I get, I'll go buy my drugs and start selling drugs out on the block just to, just to make money for my sisters and brothers to have what they wanted. Capricia's parents did drugs and are now out of the picture. She's a teenager who has been in and out of jail and has lived in over 15 foster homes. She raised herself and her siblings. She gets in a lot of fights. But Amina wants her to succeed. I went today and found out school started three weeks ago. I did go to school. You went to school when you got the f- ready to. Still gonna be the same person at the end of the day. At the end of the day, doing what? Do you want to be loved? Absolutely. Do you deserve to be loved? No. Nope. Absolutely. No. Nope. First thing you gotta love you. A day later, Capricia's put back in jail. She got high. She violated her parole. 
and this is the point in time where most people give up. After all, you can only help those who help themselves. But Amina understands what it's like to grow up with no one on your side. I wanted to bust Capriccia in the back of her head when she did that, you know, but I understood all these ranges of feelings that she was going through. You know, I'm not any different than Capricia. My mother blamed me for when her boyfriend molested me. She said it was my fault that I was jealous of his and her relationship. I was just 10, 11 years old when it started. I wasn't protected. You know, I remember being a scared girl like that. You know, me being out there and doing a lot of things that I did, I thought that I really was getting back at the person that I thought that should come and get me and tell me, you ain't got to live like that. Man, if I can go back and make that pain go away for me today, if I could do that, I would do it in a heartbeat. That's so, so painful for me, for her, because she's going to be my age someday. And it's going to be a whole bunch of regrets. Capricia invites Amina to visit her at the juvenile detention center. She's worried because she knows that the last time she saw Amina, she said some cruel words. But then, the door opens. Hey! Hi! I think that she wasn't going to come, but when I said that, when I seen her at the door, I was happy. Amina gets a whole different kind of respect on the streets now. The love and, you know, just to see people just so glad to see when you come around and when you get ready to leave they're asking when you're coming back and that that makes me feel so good you know that someone really wants me unconditional as I mentioned earlier Audio from this story came from the brilliant documentary about the ceasefire group called The Interrupters. Our producer of this piece, Stephanie Fu, would be glad to tell you how awesome it is. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. When Snap Judgment continues, we've got mayhem of all types, explosions, fights, people catching a whipping who really deserve it, and those catching a whipping who don't deserve it at all. And snap judgment, the fight of your life continues. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the fight of your life, from PRX and NPR. Today, we're featuring stories from people for whom their fight was not some subjective construct. Kyan McNaji spoke to producer Mark Ristich about the fight of his life that came when he least expected it. Please note that this story does contain some graphic imagery. It's 1994, and Kai Mignaggi is 18 years old, and he's hanging out with friends. Downtown Jerusalem, it's always bustling, lots of people there. There was a number of clubs, the underground, and the rock bar. Kai is at the rock bar and is in fine form. I had quite a lot to drink at the time. Pretty uh, intoxicated at the moment. Then from his bar stool, he hears what sounds like a celebration in the streets. Out of the blue, I heard, it sounded like firecrackers. 
He goes to the doorway to check it out. Where moments ago it was bustling with people, there was absolutely nobody there. It looked like a ghost town. There were tables turned over on the side, chairs upside down. There was absolutely nobody around. The rock bar looks out on a plaza, and there, 10 feet away, is a lone figure with a machine gun. He had an AK-47, and he had a red bandana. This is not an Israeli soldier. Across the plaza, a civilian runs across the street to escape the gunfire. And the guy turned the gun and shot him. My mind was racing. And then the guy turned around and looked me in the eye. When he looked me in the eye, I knew that I was the target. And he pointed the gun at me. And I was like, oh, my God. So I just spun around. And as I spun around, bullets started flying all around me. I literally felt a bullet fly by my ear. And then I'd run, and there were all these people lying in front of the doorway. I just stepped all over these people to get right out the back door. I turned to my right, and I saw stairs going up. From the gunfire, time can tell the gunman is moving from the plaza down the alleyway that leads to the back of the bar. The only way out is up. So I ran up these stairs. At the top of the stairs, there's a uh, really small area, and there was probably like 10... 12 people, extremely vulnerable, like very scared, talking in very, in, in, in like silent whispers because you didn't want to give your place away. Kaim is the last man that can possibly fit in this nook next to an apartment doorway. One man is lying down, silently gritting his teeth in pain. And there was this one guy who was shot through the leg um, and he was spurting blood. With every heart pump, his blood was just coming out of his leg. He had an artery that was shot, and so I took off my belt and tied a tourniquet around his leg to try and stem the bleeding. Kaim stops the bleeding, but then... The shooting got much louder at that point. Bang, bang, bang. And I realized that one stray bullet, and I'm dead. So I climbed up on top of this gate. They were telling me, where are you going? Why are you doing that? What are you doing? You're crazy. And then pulled myself over the, over the gutter and onto the roof. So I climbed up on the roof, kind of had a bird's eye view of the entire scene. From the roof, Kime figures it out. There are two gunmen, one in the alleyway and another in the plaza. The gunman in the plaza is shooting an AK-47 up at a civilian on a balcony. The civilian has a handgun and is shooting back down at the gunman. And there, standing in the middle of the plaza, is one confused American tourist. There was one American guy who was just shell-shocked, and he was standing there. Um, Bullets were flying everywhere, and this guy was just standing there spacing out, like running around. Israeli soldiers come streaming up the street, and one of them knocks the American to the ground out of the line of fire. He put his foot on his head to hold him down, and he started to shoot at the terrorist. This was just amazing. The guy took bullet after bullet after bullet from a fully automatic assault rifle and, and, and didn't fall. And then he stopped, he took out like grenades and started throwing grenades. And not one of those grenades blew up. Um, but what happened was then the soldiers just put it into fully automatic and just riddled him with bullets. Within moments, both gunmen are stopped. One of them was shot and killed right in front of the rock bar, and the other one was shot and killed in the alleyway. The two gunmen were part of Hamas, and the group released a video claiming responsibility for the attack. Even though Kaim was spared, others were not so fortunate. They kept pulling the wounded people out from all their different hiding places all over the place. Unfortunately, two people were killed. Um, One was uh, a soldier, a female soldier, off-duty and just um, was there at the time. And another one was uh, an Israeli Arab who was walking with his wife. After it's over, Kaim goes back to the scene. I remember climbing down and actually went back into the rock bar, which had been completely abandoned. There was absolutely nobody there. And um, I desperately needed a cigarette and there was a pack of non-filtered cigarettes on the table and I picked that up smoked that pack down as if there was uh, no tomorrow (laughs) as his nerves calm down he realizes this is his wake-up call it just doesn't make sense that a guy with a Kalashnikov rifle and fully automatic doesn't kill you from 10 feet 
It definitely made me realize that I have to do something with my life, that, I, that my life was not snuffed out at that moment, so there was a purpose for me living and a purpose for me being. I don't think it changed my worldview. You know, terrorist acts had happened before and they've happened since, unfortunately, um, but it definitely uh, changed me personally. I had to find a purpose for living. At the time, I didn't really have one, but I had to find a purpose for living. So he tries to take meaning from the event, and he finds it. I eventually uh, went back to my roots, and I became Orthodox. Um, in the Jewish tradition, when, there, when you're saved from something, when a miracle occurs for you, you give a blessing at the place that you were saved, and I have no doubt that God, God saved me then. I was just there uh, two years ago, and um, I went with my wife, and... Um, I say a blessing of thanks for being still here. Today, Kaim lives a sweet life with his wife and four children in Passaic, New Jersey. That story was produced by Mark Ristich with sound design by Pat Masidi Miller. Now, despite the violence inherent in this episode, our next story might just make you hungry. When Seabell Thomas opened up her cafe to win the hearts of everyone in Baton Rouge with her cooking, little did she know, when times got tough, her greatest weapon might just be her fried chicken. Come on! That's some greens and stuff in there. Okay. All I want is some of that fried chicken. The best in Louisiana, okay? Yes, indeed, baby. This is Mama Seabell, and she's known far and wide for her fried chicken. My name is Seabell Thomas, and welcome to Baton Rouge. You used to have a cafe, right? Mm-hmm. And I was in business at the Silver Moon Cafe. It was a typical little hole-in-the-wall cafe. Simple, but good. The Silver Moon was smack dab in the middle of LSU, Louisiana State University's campus, and it became home to many a hungry soul. Now tell them when they come, kick off your shoes, pull off your jacket, and get ready for Mama's love. Everybody come in my cafe know that they have to get a hug and say, Mama love you. They love my fried chicken, my smothered pork chops, black eyed peas, mashed potatoes, candy yams, cornbread, from all and every walk of life. They have come in. Day and night, the place was bustling with students, families, businessmen. They came from all over the place, like this guy, Robert Berg. Robert Berg, I got a chemical engineering degree from LSU. Really, there was no place in town that could compare home cooking-wise to eating in Mama's kitchen. Mama ran her cafe for over 20 years before she finally closed the doors of the Silver Moon. She kept doing a little catering here and there out of her house. And one day, while standing at her kitchen sink... There was an explosion. I was standing at the kitchen window, and it was an explosion. The window just fell in on me. Thought it was an earthquake. It was so powerful. Mama lives on what is called the fence line. Her home is literally across the street from a cluster of petrochemical plants. Honeywell, the ExxonMobil refinery, copolymer. And it's in the middle of what is known as the petrochemical corridor, where there's over 100 of these plants. And it turns out, on that day, one of the pressurized tanks over at the Honeywell plant exploded. That was an explosion from the plant right across the street over there. You're so scared, you're just trying to get the hell away, get yourself straight. Mama noticed that people in her neighborhood were getting sick. And she felt that it had to do with chemicals in the air from the plants. Oh, Lord. All the little children up in here have asthma. All of them have to keep a ventilator machine every week in and out of the hospital. Her husband died of cancer. Every man on the street have died in an early age with the same kind of cancer. But there was no way for Mama to prove that any of these ongoing health problems were because of air pollution. She wanted to find a way to collect air samples to test for any potentially dangerous chemicals. And she found hope in the form of a magic bucket. Actually, the bucket's just a regular old bucket. But inside, there's this special Tedlar bag. And when you attach the bag to a vacuum and hold it up to the sky for two minutes, you've got yourself an EPA-approved air sample. 
So when you smell these things coming out, catch the chemicals. The drill is to take an air sample when it's really stinky outside. It's so many different smells that comes out of there. You know, you're used to it. And then once you have the sample, this environmental group that Mama hooked up with, who calls themselves the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, overnights the bag to a lab, and a few days later, she's got a certifiable printout of exactly what was in that air. So Mama starts keeping the buckets at her house. And one night, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, there's another explosion. The man was knocking on the door. Y'all better get out. Y'all better get out. And I heard, you know, the siren going. And, ooh, and then I heard somebody saying, close your windows, turn off your air conditioner, and stay on the inside. Mama said she smelled strong odors. So I ran for my daughter, get the buckets, get the bucket to catch the chemicals in. She ran to the door, and when she stepped outside to put the bucket down, that fumes just knocked her back in the house. I said, oh, my gosh. She said, I feel all this grease on my face. What is this? I ran and got a towel to put around her face so she could put the bucket up. Eyes burning. Mama's grown daughter stood on the front porch for 120 long seconds taking the air sample. And then they got the hell out of there and fled to the hospital. Must have been about 300 people at 4 o'clock that morning went to the hospital. They had people lined up. You just rip your clothes off and they just sprayed you down like animals. The results from the bucket sample came back, showing that there were over half a dozen chemicals in the air that night. For example, four times over the legal limit of methylene chloride. And so at this point, Mama dedicates her life to cleaning up the air. If it's not worth dying for, it's not worth living for. And Mama's so busy writing petitions and going before the EPA that she'd become pretty distanced from the folks she used to call her children back at the cafe. But they missed her, and a lot of them were trying to find her. My children all across the country, they still are trying to find me. Where Mama? How can we find Mama? Eventually, some of them tracked her down, and they showed up on her doorstep. Welcome to my house. When they got here, they said, oh, Mama, thank God we found you, found you. Like Robert, that chemical engineering student from LSU. I'd kind of lost track of her, and I read on an LSU message board, someone had located her and had gone to eat lunch at her house and actually posted her phone number. And so some of the Exxon group, we actually looked her up and called her and said, hey, we'd like to come eat with you. And she said, well, what you want to eat? Like many people in the community, Robert works for Exxon. I'm the regulatory planning coordinator for the ExxonMobil Baton Rouge complex. And of course, it's just one of the many plants that's across the street from Mama's house that she's been fighting against forever. But lo and behold, she opens the door, hey, baby. welcomes them into her home, and feeds them lunch. Lord, bless that food and bless the ones that are about to receive. Oh, yeah, oh, yes. I feed a lot of Exxon people. Y'all sit down and eat. The food has been blessed. And we go and sit and eat in either her kitchen, depending on how many of us there were, or in the little garage apartment she maintains in the back. They'll say, well, Mama, fry some pork chops. Well, she knows when I'm coming, she knows she has to make some fried pork chops. And you know, Mama, I want some mashed potatoes, candy yams. Whatever I fix, they're going to eat it. I don't say no to any of it. Of course. You call me and say, hey, I'm going to eat, I'm going to cook and feed you. You know, I truly love my people over there. I love them. Because the ones right across the street, they come over here and eat that I talk to. They're being exposed, too, and that's what we're trying to show them. So while Mama's serving up this comfort food out of her home, she realizes that she has a way to reach the men in charge. Food have a lot to do with it. They say the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. She asked Robert and his colleagues to bring the top plant managers over for lunch to talk about her concerns. So at that luncheon, I had the bucket brigade that. I told them, it's not just me. This is my house, so I do what I want to do in my house. According to Mama, the top plant managers from Exxon and the bucket brigade had not met in years. I wanted to bring about a talking relationship with Exxon and the Bucket Brigade because they seemed like they didn't want to uh, meet because they never would come and meet. So the Bucket Brigade and Exxon sat down together at the table. It was a nice meeting. I think we've had some good dialogue. Sitting around the dinner table is kind of, to me, an American tradition. I mean, that's when families have their conversations. And so it's, I think it's a good non-threatening place uh, to sit down. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard, hard to argue with your mouth full, right? 
You know, we know we have a David and Goliath. And we know we're the Davis and that's the Goliaths over there. But if the chicken going to be used as a slingshot to bring the uh, refineries in and deal with us and give us what we need, hey, chicken, please just get better and better and better. <laughs> All righty. Good noon, Snappers. Mama's still cooking and still meeting those plant managers and working in her community. And Mama's putting the finishing touches on her cookbook, which contains her life story. Keep an eye out for that. Visit our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was brought to us by our own Rita Daniels. Up next, somebody's about to get beat down for love when Snap Judgment, the fight of your life, continues. Snap Judgment, the fight of your life episode from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington. And now, maybe you've never been in a fight. Maybe. But if you were born with no hands, no feet, you'd think a full contact brawl would be the last thing you'd sign up for. Well, (laughs) you'd be wrong. Uh, My name is Kyle Maynard, and I was born with a condition known as congenital amputation. It basically means that my arms ended at my elbows and legs at my knees, around where my knees would be at birth. I don't use a whole lot of adaptations for anything. I type about 50 words a minute on a normal keyboard. I drive a Dodge Durango with lifted up pedals. I get some freaked out people when I go through the drive-thru occasionally. I was the first of uh, four kids, and so when I was born, my parents, they you know, raised me with the attitude to not focus on the disability, just focus on what I was capable of doing. My dad had been a football player and a wrestler, and he was a hero of mine growing up, and started wrestling at the age of 11, started weightlifting around the same time, started with cuffs around my arms and ropes tied to them, the tiny two and a half pound plates that you see in the gym attached to that. I lifted with 100 pounds on each arm and still had the ropes tied around my arms. The stress on the rope on the right side snapped and so the counterbalance flung me across the weight room. When I started wrestling, I faced little to no opposition at first. And I think it was really corollary to the fact that I was really bad. People started to voice concerns over me being advantaged once I got better. And it was mostly parents of the kids that I was beating. By the time I was uh, a senior in high school, I ended up placing um, top 12 in the nation in wrestling at the uh, senior nationals. This all sort of led me into finding mixed martial arts, MMA. Mixed martial arts incorporates boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu. The sport was initially developed to be able to basically discern what martial art was the most effective. In the early days of the sport, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu, proved to be incredibly dominant because 
people had trained so much for the kickboxing portion of the fight, but they were not prepared when the fight would go to the ground. Wow! Transition right to an excellent submission! Taps him with the guillotine! I started training at 18 years old. Forrest Griffin, UFC light heavyweight champion, was the first one to go and invite me into the gym to go and try it. And I was wrestling at the University of Georgia at the time and the club team there and in pretty good shape and came into the gym. And with jiu-jitsu and my first exposure to that, there was a 100-pound girl that threw me in a triangle choke and almost choked me unconscious. <laughs> and fell in love with it after that because I came back the next day. And this led me to fight in MMA, mixed martial arts. I approached the Georgia State Athletic Commission about an opportunity to go and fight here in Georgia. And they initially voiced support, said it was 99% sure that it wouldn't be a problem, I'd get my license. And when I started to seek out an opponent, then there was uh, a lot of controversy about it. Lately, you've made headlines for a different reason. You've been promoting Kyle Maynard. Kyle Maynard is an inspiration, but he is also a freak. And I can't watch him, and I feel nervous every time he goes in the cage because one day someone will get, is going to soccer kick him over the cage. Okay. That's going to happen. Okay, well, People came out of the woodwork saying that I was limbless freak show trying to get more attention, that I was going to be the first televised death in the sport, that they would go and turn on the morning news and see me bloody and unconscious in the cage, and that that would be the death of MMA. It was a setback. I was denied to fight in Georgia in 2007. I approached my friend uh, David Oblas about setting up a fight in Alabama where the athletic commission there does not govern mixed martial arts, it only governs boxing. I had no delusions about being a pro fighter, but I really wanted a chance to be able to go and compete. It was game time. The fight venue was basically a dusty barn, an open, covered arena, dirt floor, these older wooden posts where they post rodeos. In one fight that I watched, there was a, a guy that just ate a nasty right straight to the jaw and had a tooth fly across the ring. Lost his tooth somewhere in the barn. When I came through the crowd, I was feeling remarkably calm. I had always had a ton of anxiety in competition. I you know, knew I was about to uh, get in a fight, knew I was about to go into combat, but it just it felt like sort of a natural, primal thing. The referee went to, uh, to start the fight, then I came in after my opponent. My goal was to go and get the fight to the ground and go and, and bring him in. The first time that he hit me in the face, or it was like, and he made good contact, and I thought, man, like this is this isn't a wrestling match, this isn't a jiu-jitsu match, like this is different. The crowd is screaming at him, yelling at him to, to fight clearly that now I'm being the aggressor. You can even hear his instructor yelling, finish the fight, finish the fight. He connected with one hard combination, rocked me a little bit. I wanted a war with reckless abandon. I went and laid on my back right in front of him just to taunt him to go and open him up. He threw an overhand right to my abdomen and connected to my liver pretty uh, pretty solid and you know felt felt all right. <laughs> Continued to go and pursue him until the end of the round and, and that was it. When the fight was over and the uh, the judges announced the decision and I had lost uh, the 30 to 27, this whole experience was, was way more about this journey and this path to be able to go and step into the cage and, and compete. And it was less about the outcome, getting to, to be in there, to go and do it, to experience something that most people never will. Now led me on to uh, you know, different journeys and um, in January, preparing to go and um, climb Mount Kilimanjaro, 19,340 feet of it, with goals of an Ironman triathlon next year, and uh, still training in jiu-jitsu, and it's been an amazing experience. The dashing Kyle Maynard continues to perform as an athlete and train in jiu-jitsu while touring the U.S. as a motivational speaker. We'll have a link to his latest adventures on snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. Now, 
David Perez had the nerve to go to bars with a beautiful woman on his arm. And in case you didn't know, Snappers, there is a price to be paid for such foolishness. One price is that people use language that would not befit the queen. Sensitive listeners are advised. I once dated a psychology major with a jealous streak. I was a literature major with a jealous streak. We drank champagne and plotted the deaths of our enemies. By enemies, I mean people with jobs. And by champagne, I mean boxed wine and Sprite. She was beautiful in a way that only a French Latina with a graduate degree can be. Drop dead sexy and she knew it. We'd go to bars and it was like every empty seat beside her was a magnet for freshmen going for their BA in awkward. It was never, come here often, or what's your sign? More like, hey, I like what you said in feminist studies class today. Before I met you, I was like totally unaware of my castration anxiety. Every couple says I love you in its own way. Ours wasn't about what we said to each other, but what we said to others. As a jealous couple, we had this jealous game. It was simple. Men would hit on her and she'd let them. Then I'd tell them to leave, but not right away. She liked watching my jealousy age. As if it were a wheel of cheddar. The more my face twisted with rage, the more it said, I love you. But one night, I wait too long. I let the TA from my history of consciousness class slip one too many whispers in her ear, and whatever he says, it makes her laugh so hard that for a second, she's ugly. Ugly in the way a good orgasm makes everyone temporarily hideous. I tell her we have to go. Outside, she's asking me what's wrong. Why am I so freaked out? Is this about the laugh thing? It's just part of the game, she says. Then, I hear it. A voice from the edge of the night says, Yo, can I bang your girlfriend? I turn to find him closer than I thought. He's one of those UFC fanboys. Forehead takes up half of his face. Arms hang below his knees. He looks the way an orangutan would look if you covered it in tribal tattoos and made it pound a gallon of Four loco. Matching tap-out hat and t-shirt. The guy who knows everything about martial arts except how to do them. And I'm thinking if anything goes down, me and my semester of judo and my Mexican jumping bean style and the fact that I am so drunk on kamikazes I have lost all feeling in my limbs are gonna form a Voltron on this guy, but no need to be rude. I simply explained to him in a calm and respectful way where his mother was last night and why she wasn't home in time for Fruit Loops. After that, the speed at which he moved was astonishing. And it dawns on me that in fact, there is a very real possibility that he knows martial arts. And the more I keep swinging and hitting the air while he keeps connecting on me as if his knuckles have like a GPS, 4G, full signal lock on my face, the more I enter a space of knowing. This guy totally knows martial arts. I look at her and she is ugly in a whole new way. Like she's watching a scary movie, except the scary movie is me. And for the next 60 seconds, all I see is just GPS accurate fist after fist after fist. At the next dark alley, jab left. At the next call for help, hook right. The evening ends in the ER. I've got ice packs on every exposed inch of my skin, so it looks like I just got beat up by an igloo. She goes to get my paperwork. And the male nurse at the counter says something that makes her smile. She answers. And he smiles. And soon, it's not an offhand remark or a passing glance, but a full-on textbook flirt session. And I can't believe it. How could she? Right in my face. And I want to ask her, is the game just always on? And if it's always on, is it even a game? Or is it just who you are? Like, is this just who you are? She comes back with the forms, and I'm waiting. 
I'm waiting for her to notice the look on my face, but she doesn't. She just starts filling everything out. Under medical conditions, she just knows astigmatism. Under race, she doesn't enter Latino. She just writes in the margin half Mexican, one-eighth Filipino, one-eighth Spanish, one-eighth Caucasian, one-eighth declined to state, like I would. She finishes the whole thing without asking me any questions but one. It's asking who to call in case of an emergency, she says. Can I just put me? Yeah. Yeah. Just put you. Ina Perez is a recipient of the Arts Council Silicon Valley Fellowship for Literary Arts. His poetry collection, Love in a Time of a Robot Apocalypse, is available through the appropriately titled Right Bloody Publishing. The story is produced by Jamie DeWolf with sound design provided by our own Renzo Gorio. Now we have reached the end of the show, but there is no such thing as a true ending. So much more Snap to explore on our website, snapjudgment.org. Full episodes, music, movies. Join the Snap Nation on Facebook. Join us! Twitter, tweet, tweet! Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the baddest boxers from Birmingham Lane. I'm pleased to knock him upside the head myself from time to time. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Anna Bob and Weave Sussman. Stephanie Left Foot Foo. Rita Sleepy Eye Daniels. Now Jamie DeWolf, he hoses himself down in the middle of story meetings. Pat Masidi Miller prefers Kung Fu. Renzo Gorio and Will Urbina they're rightly afraid of Lindsay Lee Keel. Now, have you ever been to a rave? Dancing on stage, jump toward that big dude in the middle only to have him move away last second? Well, don't get mad. It's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and they're just not used to all that loud music. Many thanks to CPB. PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media right where the public belongs. PRX.org And this is not the news. This is nobody's news. In fact, you could wake up in a room, on a chair, with someone's sock in your mouth, your hands tied behind your back. You could taste blood on your tongue and hear people coming, coming. You don't want to look. You don't want to look. But when you look, you can see the fire. But it's on a cake and your friends are screaming happy birthday. You could do all of that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. <laughs>